<laughs> right, well, good morning again. It is lovely to be with everyone, with our family, having skived off a little bit yesterday morning. Uh, last Sunday morning, we were busy about midnight, and then it you know, calmed down a bit. But um, it was great. We've, we've reached our final sermon in the series. Hooray! Part of that is relief, I must admit. Um, but also, hooray, we've completed something which, which I believe actually will prove to be a significant time for us. You know, we, we often don't realize that in the moment, but those kind of times when we do real business together, um, it's like we've, you know, nailed our colors to the mast. We've drawn lines in the sand and many other various metaphors you might want to use. There is something so powerful about a group of like-minded believers saying, we are going to be like this, which is what we've been doing in our value series for the last year. It reminds me of the story in Genesis 11, where they build the Tower of Babel. And uh, it's interesting, you, you hear God, God's dialogue. It says, what, and you realize why God was so worried and annoyed by these people. And uh, he said that if they speak the same language, and if they decide to do it together, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. There's God's words, not mine. And the Tower of Babel wasn't really about God's dislike of tall buildings. Many people think it's because they were disobeying God's commandment to go and fill and scatter the earth. And it was some of that, but not only about that. It was, it was more about, you know, if people gathered as one to make a name for themselves, God knew that it would work. And this year, it feels like we've done something similar. Together with the greed, like those guys in Genesis, we're going to build a building together. Like them, we'll use stronger bricks. These values are the bricks we build our, our building with. But unlike at Babel, we're going to do it not for our glory, but for God's glory. And in faith, I think we can hear those same words from Genesis 11, where God says, if as one people speak in the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. I want to receive those words in faith. Values are all about speaking the same language, using the best materials that we have available. And God seems to assure us when we do that, nothing we plan will be impossible for us. So let me do a very quick recap on the entire 17 value series in one minute. We looked at grace. It isn't about works. We are saved by grace and we want to bring grace into every ministry and relationship. We're going to be a church of faith, not just saving faith, but also living faith that believes and receives the impossible. We will be a Jesus-centered church. We're not going to be centered on tradition, on culture, on one human leader or on sin. We will be missional We will care more for the dire needs of the people out there than our own temporary needs. We will be a word and spirit church. We want them both and more of them both. We will be kingdom-minded. We will look to extend his kingdom, not just here, but wherever we are on every day of the week. We will be a church of stewardship. We will teach good stewardship of our time, our money, and our gifts. We will be a people of prayer, and people who see prayer as the key to unlock even the deepest, darkest dungeons that there are, to unlock any situations or problems. We will be a people of evangelism, those who love the good news and want everyone to hear it. We will be a church of healthy families, those who believe that a family is both a demonstration of the gospel, but also a demonstration of our heavenly family that we have as well. We will be a church of diversity. This church will demonstrate the inclusive gospel by being welcoming and accepting and loving to everyone from every background. We will be a church that is open to change. God is the boss here. He gets to decide what we do. We will be a church that remembers the poor, a church that loves to meet needs in different ways. Um, We want to to bless the marginalized, the poor, the sick and the prisoners. 
We'll be a church that loves small groups, loves to gather in various ways, but loves small groups is a great way to grow in maturity and gifting. We'll be a church that honours apostles as laying the good foundations for strong churches. And last week, Neil very kindly stepped in at the last minute to talk about church planting. One minute for oh, I knew I wouldn't get that, to be honest. We love the local church. We, we want all communities to have churches, have an opportunity to have a wonderful church like ours. Perhaps even better if that were possible. So there's the list. All these sermons are available online. You can even subscribe to our iTunes podcast. Now, for some of you there, I just switched into a different language, and that meant absolutely nothing to you. Or we can give you a CD, which will have all of them on there. Please, if you've missed them, listen to them. If you... Even if you listened to them before, there was so much information communicated, I would really encourage you to grab them again, and when you find some time, to listen to them again. It will do you good. And today I'm ending our value series by looking at leadership in the church. In today's church, you, with regard to leadership, you often find there are two extremes. Either the church leaders are over-glamorized, you know, so their name is on everything, the senior pastor especially. The senior pastor, he smiles at you from portraits. You, he's on the notice sheet. They have not offices, they have executive suites with giant chairs and massive power desks. These church leaders are superstars. And when you need help, you don't want anyone's assistant. You want the number one guy. That's one extreme. The second extreme is uh, kind of denigrating leadership, kind of underplaying it. And church leaders, well, they're just kind of reverent dog's body. You know, paid or indeed often not paid to do what anyone else could do if circumstances of their life were different. And it's a bit like that, you know, thing that you might talk about with teachers. You know, if you can, then you do. If you can't, then, you know, try church ministry, that kind of thing. And I must admit, as I was preparing this talk, I, I slipped into this side, the denigrating the leadership side. Because I planned a sermon a bit like, you know, this is what leadership in the church is all about. We're all leaders. You know, let's all aim to be those things. A kind of a, you know, priesthood of all believers. Everyone's involved. Everyone's leading. But then I realized I was doing what I've just mentioned now. I was underplaying the role. I was denying the basic fact that God does call some to be leaders and some to be followers. Or rather, all to be followers and some to be leaders of some followers. God's choice of government for his new community church wasn't a democracy. Equal votes for all. It was never pantarchy where everyone is their own boss, which, let's be honest, sounds more appealing than it really is. There's a reason it sounds like anarchy. God didn't choose those systems. He chose theocracy with his own elected representatives. God decided my church would be run by leaders who have been voted in, but it's just one vote and it's his. And so it would be wrong for me to use the kind of priesthood of all believers theology to denigrate the gift of leadership and the office of leadership that is given to some through the Holy Spirit. In Romans 12.6, it says we have all been given, we, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. And then a couple of verses later, it mentions leadership as an example of that. Leadership is a grace gift of God. And again, our British tendency is to downplay that. Well, it's a grace gift, which means that anyone could do it as well as anyone else. But that isn't what grace gift means. It means it was unearned. It was undeserved. It was unmerited. It doesn't mean that one person would do it as well as anyone else. 
And this is also important when you consider the current debate going on in the Church of England about women bishops and, and women church, women, indeed women elders. Leadership is being a grace gift doesn't mean that everyone who wants to go should be allowed to have a go. Otherwise, you're being ungracious. It means no one deserves it. No one. But God gives it as he decides. And we feel from the example in the family, from Adam's example as being the head of mankind through to Jesus' choice of disciples and in the early church, we feel for one part of church leadership, that is eldership, we feel from God's, from what God has said about it, we feel that grace gift is reserved for men. Now, if you think scripture points to a different conclusion, I'm very happy for, to talk that through with you, but I don't see any other thing. It is a grace gift. It's not that men deserve it and women don't. No one deserves it, but God chooses some. And so I don't want to downplay the gift or the role, because sure, in some sense, we do all have leadership roles. You know, whether in the family, whether as a, a husband or a wife, or even as an older sibling, we have responsibility to lead things well. And I'm sure even in your workplace or at school or wherever, you have leadership opportunities, ways to lead others into faithful service, ways that you can speak well of your boss, be the first one to do that and to lead others into doing that. And I'm sure there are many ways that each of us can lead the way in, where God, in the place where God has put us, but that shouldn't belittle the leadership positions that God has placed in his body, the church. So I began to ask that question. What kind of leadership do we want here at BFC? Let me give you a sentence I'd like you to fill in in your minds. We want ex-leaders at BFC. Oh, you've given it away. Oh, Ruth. It's gone again. Um, It's probably a thought of my PowerPoint rather than Ruth's, you know, working of it. You might have thought of... Had you not had the answer before, you might have thought of a a thoughtful uh, leader, maybe a a relevant leader, maybe, as we said before, maybe kind of a transparent leader, maybe servant. Well, maybe that was one of the first things, servant leadership. But none of those things cover everything. Some people who think that New Frontiers is a one policy movement would say, at BFC, we want men only leaders. But that certainly doesn't cover it. And it's not true either. The best description I came up with, and Ruth has already told you, was Christ-like leadership. Our value is to be a church led by leaders whose primary role is to imitate Christ. BFC is and will continually strive to be a church with Christ-like leaders. Now, we have great leaders, but we're not there yet. And indeed, since it requires perfection, we will never truly get there. But it's something worth going after, don't you agree? It's good to aim for perfection. In fact, I think it's commanded of us. 1 Peter 1.16 says, be holy because I am holy. You know, it's something we will strive after all our lives, but we will be in a better place when we finish than when we start. So if we are after Christ-like leaders, what kind of leader was Christ? We need to know what the Bible says. And I found four things, four of the ways that the Bible describes Christ's leadership. The first thing he was a servant leader, as I've mentioned. Matthew twenty twenty eight. the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think we've become too accustomed to understanding Christ as a servant leader, like we sang on earlier. It doesn't seem to shock us anymore. Can you imagine Diamond Jubilee? The queen at the end of it says, thank you very much. I'm not going to try and do an accent, don't worry. Um, at the end of it, she says, that's it, great. 
you know, I've had a good run. I'm stepping down now. Takes off the crown, you know, gives back all the palaces, all the cars, all the, you know, everything. Imagine she then lives homeless for the rest of her life. You know, reliant on the kindness of strangers for every next meal, every next stay overnight. If no one's kind to her that evening, she sleeps in the park. Can you imagine the shock to the system that would be for someone at her age who's been enjoying that life for that long? Then picture Jesus giving up not just the glory of a British throne, but the glory of a heavenly throne. The worship of angels, not to come as a king in glory that the best the world can offer, but to come essentially as a, as on the status of a slave. Remember as well that Christmas story that always it sounds so romantic, doesn't it? You know, the manger is quite a clean manger, isn't it? All the animals are quiet and respectful in kind of a semicircle. There's a nice starlight coming down and gently glowing the place up. Quiet baby with his halo around his head and guests that come and bring gifts. It's, it looks, it sounds very romantic, doesn't it? But that was nothing like the reality. Let me be honest here. I'm close enough to labor to remember that a sanitized ward with free food and warm beds still wasn't close to the perfection that we want for that moment. You know, Jesus was the only person who got to choose the circumstances of his birth, and look at what he went for. That's what our leader went for. And then he lived this whole life, first 30 years, in complete obscurity. You know, you just think, oh, I'd have gone public much sooner. But, you know... He then refuses the the riches and the career of the religious leaders. At the age of 12, he could already outsmart. He could have had any job in Israel he wanted to with all the riches that came with those roles in those days. And he gave them all up. Then we see that amazing moment in John 13 where it says that Jesus knew he'd come from the Father and he knew he was going back to the Father. He knew that the Father had placed all things under his control. How did Jesus celebrate that moment? By washing his disciples' feet as a demonstration of what leadership is really all about. Now, I don't know about you, but of all the career paths in life, one of them I would never go near. That is chiropody or chiropody. You know, I would choose any other career, moral or immoral, I'm not fussed, rather than turning up on a Monday morning, some farmer who hasn't taken his boots off all winter, who then takes it off and then expects me to touch his feet with its verrucas and Athlete's foot and bunions and corns and all those kind of things. For me, that is hell. Jesus tells us those who lead the people to do the same. In fact, he says all of us to live that servant life and leaders should lead us into that. He says in the economy of his kingdom, greatness follows servanthood. I read out the, um, the verse from Matthew 20, verse 28. And the con- I love the context of that verse. Because it comes about because uh, the mother of Zebedee, so James and John's mother, comes to Jesus with her sons, which is quite strange because they're standing there listening to all this. And uh, Zebedee's uh, wife, or this lady, went to Jesus and said, can I have a favor? And Jesus says, okay, what do you want? And she said, let my sons sit at your right and your left when you come in your glory and your kingdom. Jesus then explains a bit, saying, do you, know, do you realize that the glory of my kingdom comes through suffering? And, you know, can you accept that? And they say yes, and they do, which is true. Um, and then Jesus says, well, actually, it's not for me to decide. You know, this is only the father gets to decide who sits where. And, um, but then it says, it, it says, I think in verse 24, it says, the other 10 disciples were indignant with James and John. I think they're indignant, not that they'd asked that question, but that they'd asked it before they'd asked it. Um, and and Jesus, Jesus sends this. Um, 
That's what he says. He says, Jesus called them together. This is verse 25. And said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. What I find most interesting about this passage is that Jesus doesn't tell them that greatness is a bad thing. When they come to him asking for leading roles in the kingdom to be first in the kingdom to come, Jesus didn't condemn the ambition, just the methods. He didn't say, you know, greatness is not appropriate for people in the church. That's a worldly thing. He didn't say, well, how dare you want to be great? You know, the kingdom is about smallness. He essentially said, you want greatness? Excellent. This is how you are going to get it, by being the servant of all. If you want a leadership role in my church to come, excellent. This is how you are going to achieve it, by being a slave. You want responsibility in the kingdom of God? Great. This is how it comes about. If we want Christ-like leaders, we want servants. So what else is, what kind, what else is the kind of leader? Number two, he's a shepherd. Again, Jesus himself says in John ten eleven, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd uh, who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf come and he abandons the sheep and runs away, then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You know, I find it very telling that when God looked for an animal to describe mankind, he didn't go for a majestic eagle or a powerful lion or even a pure dove. He went and called us sheep. Do you know the sheep is the only domesticated animal that can't go wild again? It is an animal with no offensive or defensive weapons, an animal whose hearing is as bad as its sight, and they're slow as well. They've even got flight on their, on their hands. They have no sense of direction. They are easily startled by pretty much everything. And on top of that, they are stubborn, which seems ironic because they are the one animal with nothing to be stubborn about. God says, that's you. And you need shepherds. You need a good shepherd, and you need under-shepherds, who actually are also sheep as well, so don't worry. They need leading as well. You know, there are many aspects of the shepherd's role that kind of comes to mind when you think about leadership. You know, protection of the sheep, that kind of being the gate way. Self-sacrifice, laying down your life. The guidance, the feeding, the resting. But I think the key thing that Jesus was getting at in John 10 was the taking of responsibility. Because what Jesus contrasts the hired hand with the shepherd. One takes personal responsibility. The other is in it until things get tough when they bolt or hide. And churches need shepherds, not hired hands. Just as Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28, he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Shepherding is about taking responsibility. And this was the very thing that God was getting angry about the Israelite under shepherds for not doing in Israel's history. Jeremiah ten twenty one he says, You shepherds don't inquire of the Lord so the flock gets scattered. Isaiah fifty six eleven, these shepherds are concerned about their own gain. Ezekiel thirty four two, they only take care of themselves. And in verse eight, they didn't search out the lost flock the lost flock. Shepherds are all about taking personal responsibility for the sheep, hearing God for them, watching over them, seeking out the lost ones. 
BFC needs leaders under shepherds who will take responsibility. And taking responsibility is very different to exercising authority. Because anyone can exercise authority. My two-year-old tries to do it every day of the week. My three-year-old definitely tries to do it every moment. It's very different to taking responsibility. There's a, there's a story of a, of a police recruit, and he's reached the written exam to get qualified. And uh, he's presented with a scenario in this written exam as to what he would do in this situation. And in the scenario, he's called to the scene, and he gets kind of jostled by this incoherent man who's shouting random stuff, which he can't understand. As that's going on, there's a crowd next to him, and a crowd gathers around two guys that are trying to kill each other. Um, not only is that going on, he realizes in the corner of his eye, there's a burglar who's just broken into a house, you know, the commotion that's distracted everyone else. Um, at this point, he suddenly realizes the incoherent man is saying that his wife's in labor, his car doesn't start, the ambulances are on strike, and he doesn't know what to do. He then sees a burning building behind him with a woman at the top floor screaming. This is the scenario given to this recruit, police recruit. When asked what he would do in such a situation, the recruit wrote down, take uniform off and merge with the crowd. <laughs> you know, as, as, a, as a dad, I, I love the, the cute moments of the job. I love the, the kind of, you know, the respect and the honor that you get. I love the title, dad. I love having a daddy's chair. Every dad should have a daddy's chair. Bigger, you know, so people can, guests can sit in it sometimes, but mostly reserved for dads. But there's obviously another side to the role, and that is the taking responsibility, which isn't so much fun all the time and isn't always so glamorous. You know, and as a leader, there's, there are often times when I'd gladly take off my uniform and merge with the crowd. Maybe, you know, sit at the back, do nothing. Well, it's a bit quiet in worship. Well, it's okay. It's a priesthood of all believers, so it's as much anyone else's problem as it is mine. No, leaders take responsibilities. You know, that was Adam's great mistake in the Garden of Eden. He didn't take responsibility for his family and allowed sin to take over control. Philip Greenstade, in his excellent book, which I highly recommend, got a slightly creepy cover, but get, get past that, a book on leadership. And he says that filled with the Holy Spirit, a leader is able to take responsibility without being overwhelmed by it. Filled with the Holy Spirit, a leader is able to take responsibility without being overwhelmed by it. And often that taking responsibility for something will lead to pain and frustration and tears. But the leader accepts that because that's part of the role and he sees something bigger going on. We want Christ-like leaders, we want servants, we want shepherds. Bible says as well that Jesus was, in his leadership, he was a teacher. Mark 1.22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority not as the teachers of the law, not as those who called themselves teachers in those days. Jesus was the perfect teacher. He was able to speak to crowds of thousands, but also he didn't mind the one-to-ones. He used language that both the scholars and the uneducated could understand. He used rich imagery through stories. He demonstrated not just the ability to memorize and recite scripture, but to truly understand it in its context. He was such a good teacher, actually, that millions of people who are alive today who don't consider Jesus to be anything divine still consider this 30-year-old first-century Jew who never went to university or pretty much didn't go to school, they still consider him to be the most insightful teacher of all time. There is something to be said about how the world still looks at Jesus and his teaching. He He taught with authority. 
Selwyn Hughes in his book, um, Holy Spirit, Our Counselor, which is actually available at the back. That, that's those series on Selwyn Hughes. They are ex- from Selwyn Hughes. They are excellent, all worthy, and they're a bargain price. Go and buy them. They're great. But in his book on the Holy Spirit, he spoke about how, where Jesus' authority came from when he was teaching. And often we think it's just something divine, just kind of zapped down on Jesus. Actually, Selwyn Hughes makes the point, actually, it's because the authority came from the truth which he was teaching. Not so much as kind of zapped down that none of us could have, but just the truth that he was presenting. Hughes writes, he was uncovering reality with a capital R. And we too need leaders who can teach us, not just preaching like this on a Sunday, but just wisdom throughout the week. People who we can go to with a a confidence that there is a treasury of, of information and revelation in them that we can draw from when we need guidance. Now, obviously, for teaching, the most important place for a leader to teach begins with himself or herself. The authority of our words comes not just from the words that we are saying, but also the life of the teacher. Again, why this technically untrained, uneducated Jesus had so much weight. He didn't just preach. He totally lived all these things out. And Christ-like leaders must know that teaching is done by both word and deed, both sermons and also our attitudes. When we have lots of preparation time, like on Sundays, or when someone springs something on us any day. Fourthly, Hebrews 6.20 says that Jesus is the one who went before us. He is our forerunner. This is the kind of leader Jesus is for us. Forerunner, it's one of those things we'll hear a lot about in the Olympics. And Jesus isn't just some encourager standing on the, on the side shouting stuff at us. He isn't a coach who rides in the van while we're cycling or running in the race. He is our forerunner, the Bible says. He goes ahead of us and leads the way. Colossians 1 even says that Jesus was the firstborn over the dead so that he might have the supremacy in all things. So literally, he even went through death to be our forerunner in that. God himself in Christ ran ahead of us even through death. Jesus wasn't one of those First World War generals who sipped brandy in the French chateau while his men died in the mud. He was there with them, leading the way, even through death, into victory. This is our Jesus. And we too need forerunners, men and women who are striding ahead and drawing us with them. Ultimately, we, know we need the best followers, the, or the, the true forerunner, Christ. We don't need encouragers or coaches, although they're good, we need forerunners. So we lead. We lead from the front. We don't need people that can just talk. You know, if we want to talk, then we'll find an MP. You know, literally that word parliament leads place of talking. That's all it is. It's talking. We need forerunners to follow. And ultimately, we are all called to follow Christ. And human leaders are meant to be an encouragement towards that, a simplification of how we might do that. The leaders are only there really to point others to Christ and to make following him simpler and easier. But also, unlike with Christ, actually, we are called to, um, our expectation should be that those running behind us will overtake us. Christ could never be overtaken, but we can and should welcome it. Now, I've heard it said that a leader's job is to make themselves redundant, or rather redundant in one place to be immediately rehired somewhere else. That's the kind of leaders we want. This is the kind of leadership that we want. We want servants. People like Christ in that way. We want shepherds, those who take responsibility for the flock. We want teachers, especially those who begin with themselves. And we want forerunners, those who stride ahead and draw us along 
with him. Let me finish this talk by considering now the right response to leadership. If we want all those things, how are we going to do it? What steps do we need to take? How can we practically make this happen ourselves? First thing we need to do is to learn obedience. We have to learn obedience because it doesn't come naturally to us. That's why it was said, strangely of Jesus, it said in, in, in Hebrews 5, 8, it says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Which seems a quite a strange statement that Jesus needed to learn obedience. Surely he was God, he knew obedience. But I think it was actually because in the context into which he was placed into a sinful world that loves rebellion, Jesus had to learn obedience. And left to our default settings, we would always choose rebellion over obedience. You know, we love to make excuses, don't we, about why, why we as a culture, why we as a nation, why we as a generation don't like obedience. And things like, you know, well, we haven't been led well recently. Look at our imperfect church leaders. Look at our MPs with their expense scandals. Look at my father who abused his authority. Look at the last century and the horrors that were committed by despots and tyrants and you know, people blindly obey, obeying these leaders did terrible things. And look at, what, look at the history we have. No, no wonder we don't like obedience to our leaders. And yet I actually think things are slightly simpler than that. I think just we are a rebellious species. Without any of the things to blame that we like to blame, Adam and Eve still disobeyed God. You know, Adam and Eve had the perfect father. Adam and Eve had the perfect authority. They had a leader who only loved them completely and made them And yet they still rebelled. We are a proud people and we are living the default rebellious life. We don't like obedience. Let's be honest. We don't mind advisors. Advisors are great. We don't want leaders. Especially if their advice seems to conflict with ours, then we ignore it. We are our own leaders. We obey ourselves. And yet God seems very clear about it. Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no advantage to you. Of no advantage, no benefit to who? The leaders? No, ourselves. Because this is how God is redeeming mankind. This is how he is winning them back. Through a new community of believers, saved by Christ, indwelt by his Holy Spirit, and led by his choice of representatives. God has given us leaders, not advisors, and he calls us all, leaders or not, to be the best followers that we can. And actually, in fact, this this lesson is as important for leaders as for anyone else. As a leader, I need to learn obedience. I may be a man with authority, but I am also a man under authority. Often, personally, I see that as quite negatively. You know, well, if you don't obey anyone, then you shouldn't let anyone obey you. But actually, there's a positive thing that I found out about this as well. And um, because accepting both the authority we have and the authority we should honor places us in a chain of command. Do you realize that? If I both have authority and there's authority above me, then I'm in a chain of command. This, this point is best illustrated by the story of the centurion and his sick servant. You may have heard of it. In Matthew 8, a centurion comes to Jesus and says, My servant is sick. Can you heal him? Jesus says, Yeah, okay, I will go to him and heal him. The centurion stops Jesus and says, No, 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 no. You don't need to come to our house. You just say the word and he will be healed. Jesus is amazed at the faith of this Gentile. 
But then you listen to the centurion's reason for that level of faith was authority. What do you hear the centurion saying? He says, I too am a man under authority. I say to this one person, go, and he goes, and this other person, come, and he comes. What is the centurion saying? He says, I'm under authority, therefore I'm in that chain of command so that when I say something to a servant, it's as if the one at the top of the chain, i.e. Caesar, is making the statement himself. That's why the servant goes and comes, because it's like the emperor saying it. And and this centurion knew that Jesus, too, was in a chain of command that went beyond him, even to the throne in heaven. So that when Jesus said a word, it was as if the, the, the emperor, the king of heaven, was saying that same thing. So, of course, it would have been done. Oh, you don't need to enter my house. You just need to say the word here. You're a man with authority and under authority. And it's as if your Caesar, your emperor, your king in heaven is saying that very thing. And so if I have been given authority but won't come under authority, the chain stops with me. You get that? If I've been given authority but won't come under authority, the buck stops with me. I no longer have access to the glory of the majesty in heaven with its infinite resources. But if I plug myself into that chain of authority, then I am allowed to call on that authority any time I like, which is why I obey. Second thing we need to do, seek humility, the very opposite of pride. Pride says, I am the center of all things. My needs come ahead of anyone else. Pride's humility says, others come before me. So I go to home group, not just because I feel I should or when it feels right. I go because there are people there that I could bless. You know, I serve not just because it gives me some altruistic bars and I feel good about myself, I do it because others will be blessed and their growth is important to me and their well-being is important to me and more important than my Sunday morning relaxation plan. Philippians 2 says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Jesus, who had nothing to be humble about, did that for you and me. So us who, let's be honest, have lots of things to be humble about, i.e. my mistakes, surely should do the same thing. Because the point is this, godly leadership flourishes in the context of humility. I want you to get that. Godly leadership flourishes in the context of humility. Humble leaders and humble followers. Leadership goes wrong and fails when pride gets involved. Because leaders lord it over and people rebel, God's way gets forgotten. If you want BFC led well, seek humility for yourself. Thirdly, what else should we do? Pray for our leaders, please. 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Because as first servants, as under shepherds who lay their lives down, as those who publicly stand up for truth in a world that doesn't like truth, those who run ahead of us means that leaders are on the front line of the spiritual battle and generally are attacked first. Pray for your leaders on all levels. Personally, I I ask for your prayers. Pray for me. Pray for my family. 
you know, I'm really surprised that the biggest arguments that we have are on the way to church meetings. Pray for my sleep, which generally seems to be the first casualty of my job. Pray for all the leaders at BFC, your ministry leaders. Pray for your home group leaders. Pray for your youth leaders, your kids workers. Pray for your boss at work. Pray for your government. Pray for David Cameron. Even Nick Clegg, you know, God knows he needs it. Pray for them. Pray for the queen in her role. When they flourish, we are blessed. Let's pray that they flourish. Fourthly, and lastly, seek to be a leader in our spheres of influence. Because providing we are doing those first three, I don't believe it's undermining God's call if we seek to be a leader in the context God has placed us. Paul says even that those who desire to be an elder, an overseer, uh, desire a noble thing. There's a lovely verse that Apostle John writes, and I can't remember the reference to us, but he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than hearing my children, the, one that I am, the ones I am leading, are walking in the truth. I, let that be said of all of us as we lead through servanthood, through shepherding others, through teaching and through leading a path on which they can follow. Know the joy of leading the way and seeing others come into the truth of that through you. Know the joy of leading others further into the grace and the mercy and the knowledge and the love of Christ. That joy will be all other joys you can find. Trust me. You know, I find it interesting that um, when Jesus himself gave some leadership lessons, when he spoke about leadership, it was always contrasting his leadership with the world. The world's v. Jesus. So he says of the world, they lord it over the people. What does Jesus do? He serves. You know, the reason leaders try and lord it over is because of emotional instability. Do you realize that? In contrast, Jesus knew who he was before the Father, so he didn't need to bully, he didn't need to lord it. And good leaders stop themselves from lording over the people by being thoroughly assured as to who they are in Christ. He said as well that those leaders bring burdens, but he frees people. He could say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you peace. Now, obviously, as leaders, we can't offer those same things, but we can point others to that peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Rather than laying on more burdens and expectations on an already heavily laden soul. Never forget the story that Philip Yancey said, wrote in one of his books about the prostitute and the drug addict who just, just realized she'd hit rock bottom. And someone said to her, have you ever considered going to church? And she was like, church? Why would I ever want to go there? I feel awful already. I feel bad enough as it is. We need leaders that take off burdens, not add more religious burdens and loads on people. Also, Jesus said, they seek to do good to themselves and not others. Jesus' alternative was the good shepherd who even lays down his life for the sheep. The complete opposite desire, complete opposite action. And all the time we see the values of the kingdom in complete contrast to the values of the world. It reminds us that God isn't after a people that are just a little bit different or a little bit holier than the rest of the world. God isn't after a people that kind of have similar lives, but then add a few Bible and religious things on top of it. He isn't after people that, you know, do everything else everyone else does, but then adds church or adds home group or adds prayer to that as well. He is after a new people, a new community, a new family that are radically different 
to anything the world has. God is after a people who are reborn completely through his spirit and then are completely filled day after day and then devoted to a reverse lifestyle. And actually, looking back at all of the series on values, that's what they've all been about. In contrast to the world, we are to be like this. In contrast to what the world says is to be valued, we are to be like this. We are to be a people of grace, a people of faith, a people on mission, a people in Christ. A people led by Christ-like servants and filled with spirit-led believers. That's what the values have been all about, all 17 of them. This is what the world says, but this is what God says. These are the values of the world, but these are the values of what God wants for his people. You know, this is impossible for us to do in ourselves. It requires an initial rebirth to be reborn in Christ, in the new kingdom. And the Bible says as well that we need a daily infilling of God's spirit to help us continue to do this. And so my question for you this morning is, have you been reborn in Christ? If the values have touched you, if you thought actually that way doesn't work, but this way does work, you need to be born again in Christ. It it can only begin there. And the second question I have is, do you constantly and daily seek a filling of the Holy Spirit to keep doing those things? Because otherwise we we never make it. Because you know, when as a church we are living out the values of the kingdom, wonderfully we can expect the signs of the kingdom to come as well. Please let's not be like those Christians who kind of expect miracles, even though they're not living a life that is honoring Christ in any way. Somehow surprised when the power isn't there. Don't be like that. Allow God to transform you. And let's strive with all the effort possible to live out all of these values. Because when we do, we can then ask God for the bigger miracles. Because when God sees his kingdom being extended through this church, he will pour out the greater stuff, which I'm sure we are all praying for. And as the Genesis 11 says of those Tower of Babel, when we all speak the same language, when we all build with the same strong bricks, when we all decide to do it together, God himself says nothing will be impossible for us to do. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this sermon that you've led us, this sermon series that you've led us into. I think that it's good for us to remember your values when we are being preached at every day, the values of this world. What is important, how we should react, how we should speak, what we should think, what we should plan. Lord, because they are being spoken to us every day, we want to ground ourselves in the values of your new kingdom. The wonderful kingdom of light into which you have brought us. And I pray for us as a church that we would not just accept these values but we would take hold of them they wouldn't just be some kind of tick box in our mind yeah yeah, i believe in grace but actually grace would be demonstrating everything that we do we wouldn't just say well yeah well of course we're people of faith but actually we will be driven by faith every day we wouldn't just talk about leadership as being something nice to have on a sunday morning but actually to place ourselves in a chain of authority that does lead all the way to the throne in heaven And I pray for us, particularly, Lord, sometimes we we do struggle more than others, or sometimes we struggle in areas over obedience. 
And maybe there is historical reasons for that, Lord, but I pray that you would just by your spirit just help us with that. And where we struggle with pride over particular things, would you show us your humility and help us to do that ourselves? Lord Jesus, we want this to be a church of Christ-like leaders on all levels. On all levels. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to do that. Amen.